Hello and welcome to Case Dismissed, a teenager's guide to the Supreme Court. I'm Carter Higgins, and I'm so glad you've decided to listen today. In today's episode, I examine the case that placed the first restrictions on the First Amendment, more specifically, the freedom of speech. Schenck versus United States. But first, what exactly do we mean when we say, my First Amendment rights? The First Amendment states, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances, end quote. Possibly the most important First Amendment provision is the protection against the government's suppression of speech. On June 15th, 1917, just two months after the United States entered World War I, Congress passed the Espionage Act to prohibit obtaining information, taking pictures, or copying descriptions of any information relating to the national defense with intent or reason to believe that the information may be used for the injury of the U.S. or to help other countries. The act also criminalized anyone obstructing enlistment or causing insubordination in the armed forces. During this time, socialists Charles Schenck and Elizabeth Baer distributed pamphlets declaring the draft unconstitutional, citing that it violated the 13th Amendment, which prohibited involuntary servitude, and urged the public to disobey the draft, but only by peaceful means. Schenck and Baer were charged under the Espionage Act, to which they appealed on the grounds of their First Amendment rights. The constitutional question of this case was, did Schenck's conviction under the Act for criticizing the draft violate his First Amendment right to the freedom of speech. The court ruled unanimously for the United States. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, writing the court's opinion, ruled that the courts owed greater deference to the United States government during wartime, even if constitutional rights such as the freedom of speech were at stake. Establishing the clear and present danger test, which is used in many Supreme Court cases, Holmes concluded that the First Amendment does not protect speech that poses a clear and present danger that Congress has the authority to regulate, and that the government had a legitimate interest in convicting Schenck and Bear. Holmes famously compared Schenck's pamphlet to shouting fire in a crowded theater, writing, quote, the most stringent protection of free speech would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic, end quote. Schenck versus the United States established that the First Amendment was not given carte blanche. In cases that soon followed, 
the court upheld Holmes's clear and present danger test. But later, in 1969, Brandenburg v. Ohio, the court ruled that the government could only restrict inflammatory speech that, quote, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action, end quote, which gave more meaning and clarity to the test. To talk more about the Schenck precedent, I invited constitutional law professor at Lincoln Memorial University in Tennessee, Stuart Harris. So many of us, of course, have heard the phrase, uh, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, but may not know where that came from, which is Schenck versus the United States in uh, Justice Holmes's uh, majority opinion. So without the Schenck precedent, and assuming there were no subsequent cases like it, even however hard that is to assume that, what do you think the United States would look like uh, today? Well, that's a big question, Parker, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure I can answer it, um, <laughs> but I can take a stab at uh, talking about the importance of Schenck. Schenck is an attempt by the court to navigate between two constitutional values. One of them is free speech, and the rest protected by the First Amendment, and the other one is implicit in any government, and that is the, um, the power of the government to preserve itself and to safeguard society. You could call that the general welfare power, or you could call it the police power, or simply the inherent uh, power of any government to preserve itself. Uh, because some speech is dangerous, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so we do criminalize certain types of speech. Can't go out, for example, and reveal secret codes that you might have come across. You can't defame people, mm-hmm. cause them harm. You can't engage in certain other activities uh, like uh, child pornography, which is expressive conduct, but mm-hmm. we would outlaw it nonetheless. Yeah. Uh, but what do you what 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 do you do when it comes to speech, which is very political in nature? Mm-hmm. There's actually a term for that sort of speech in the First Amendment jurisprudence, and it's called core political speech. And it is subject to the highest protection under the First Amendment because it is so essential to the functioning of our democratic republic. And we really couldn't function as a country if we couldn't have political debates, which the court has described as wide, open, and robust in other cases. We want to protect that sort of speech to the greatest extent possible. So when you're talking about that kind of speech, what are the appropriate limits? And that's what Schenck was designed to address. You recall the facts of that case was that the, I think it was the Socialist Party in Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, which notes Philadelphia, yeah. was trying to discourage young men from complying with the draft of World War I, which was a very, very controversial law. And they set out pamphlets, letters to these people saying, you know, you shouldn't do this, you should resist this and assert your rights. Well, it happened that there was a federal law against interfering with the draft. And there was common law precedent suggesting that even attempting to do so could be considered a crime. So the question became, was this core political speech by this group of people who were adamantly opposed to the war and opposed to the draft on the one hand, or was it on the other hand, an attempt to break the law by actually obstructing the draft. And as you can guess, it's a very close question and a very important question, Mm -hmm. uh, because if we're going to outlaw any political speech, uh, we might, the term is we might chill other political speech. 
speech can might discourage people from speaking out on important political issues. So I think that's the importance of Schenck, is that it attempted to address that issue. And, of course, in its particular circumstance, it upheld the criminal convictions. Mm -hmm. And that is why it's so controversial, uh, because it acted in a way, uh, the court acted in a way that today perhaps it would not. Um, and then yeah. finally, of course, it announced the extremely important standard that is still, to some extent, good law today, the clear and present danger standard which was the court's attempt to articulate how you differentiate protected speech, on the one hand, from unprotected speech. Unprotected speech is that which presents a clear and present danger of some harm that Congress has the power to prohibit. I'm sorry, that was a lengthy answer, but law professors have a habit of doing that. Well, no, that's fine, because that's actually, that's actually a perfect segue into my second question, is uh, where does the clear and present danger test get complicated? I know it's been um, you know clarified or added to by the Brandenburg uh, test, but you know for example in Gitlow versus New York in 1925, Justice Holmes dissented, one of the two dissenters, citing that this man Benjamin uh, Gitlow's calls for socialism, uh, you know through through protests and class action were too abstract. So where does that get complicated, and what do you think you know maybe those two these two cases and. Uh, Holmes's actions in these two cases tell us about the clear and present danger test. Clear and present danger is one of those very deceptive phrases that sounds really neat, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, a danger has to be clear and it has to be present. I mean, it has to be right now. And it has to be a danger of um, someone doing or encouraging someone to do something that that person shouldn't do. But what exactly is clear to me? Mm -hmm. Something that's clear to me may not be clear to you. And present, what does that mean? Uh, right now, does that mean this very second, or does that mean sometime within the next five minutes, mm -hmm. an hour from now, or a day from now? Those are all subject to interpretation. In fact, it's quite possible for any lawyer to argue that black means white and white means black, depending on the context. Um, that's one of the lessons that we all learn in law school, is that every word, no matter how supposedly clear it is, is subject to interpretation. Mm -hmm. And that's why lawyers charge so much money. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's really interesting. Because I think when I was thinking about you know how to how to further this discussion, um, I thought of you know Trump's speech before January sixth. You know, it, should that have been protected? You know, under these tests, because I think that's a very interesting question. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll pick up on that. When Holmes announced the clear and present danger test, he did so in a paragraph where he talked about putting any statement in context, mm -hmm. and that a statement that would be perfectly legal in one context would not be legal in another one. Yeah, and that's where he used his famous example: you should not be able to, uh, the government should be able to punish someone for falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater. So he talked about context, and I think that's actually what's happening right now is the January 6th committee is very busily trying to discover the context of that particular speech. Mm -hmm. And if the president was not at all involved uh, with what happened in the Capitol on January 6th, well, then it's more likely a court would look at and say that's just political rhetoric. Go down back there and take back our country. Yeah. Take it back, you know, whatever, whatever it was he said specifically. Um, you know, that statement could be interpreted 
at least two ways. One of them is just political rhetoric or, or political speech, or it could be interpreted, depending on what the January 6th committee finds, as being an actual call to violence. And I don't know if you've been following that closely, but the more evidence comes out, the more it seems that the president was very involved yeah. in the planners of this, and that it's quite possible that he was hoping to um, to declare a national emergency and use uh, the National Guard to suppress dissent. Um, the story that's currently coming out, again, this is all subject to further revelations, and it's going to take months or even years. Um, it seems that um, the hope was, on the part of uh, Trump and his minions, that a large number of counter-protesters would show up, the so-called Antifa mm -hmm. people, which really don't exist because Antifa is not really a, a, an organization, it's more of a you know, philosophy. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, assuming you had 25,000 raving lunatic Antifa people out there you know, eating babies and you know, burning things, um, well, then that would give justification to um, the government to you know, call out the troops and declare martial law, um, thus setting up an excuse for a coup. Now, that seems to be where a lot of the current evidence is pointing. And so in that context, you might interpret the president's speech on the morning of January 6th rather differently. I, th I think it really shows how... Uh complicated these tests and these these uh contexts and how complicated they get tell my students carter that the first amendment is probably the most messed up area of constitutional law <laughs> which is in turn probably the most messed up body of law in all of american law uh, it's it's inherently political isn't it mm -hmm. uh, i mean i've often said that the constitution is just politics written down Mm -hmm. um, and to a great extent it is so it's almost impossible to discuss it again without context and when you talk about the context whether past or present it's all about politics yeah. so obviously when to get back to your question about January 6th a lot of this is going to depend on people's political persuasions mm -hmm. and that's going to affect how they interpret what happened yeah um, and my third question uh, my last question uh, is as my AP government class will hopefully use this podcast as a resource um, before the exam to go through all the 15 required cases. Um, could you sum up Shank versus United States, the United States, um, and its importance in a few synthesizing sentences? Sure. As I said at the outset, Shank is among the first attempts by the Supreme Court to draw a line between two types of speech, core political by the First Amendment, on the one hand, and then on the other hand, speech which crosses a line into inciting someone to commit crimes or cause other harm uh, that the government has prohibited it. And the test that it came up with, the clear and present danger test, is still with us today, and therefore it has an enduring um, effect on American law. Now, one case we haven't talked about, uh, except that is the Brandenburg case mm -hmm. of 1969, which many people, including me, thought had effectively overruled Schenck mm -hmm. because it, had, it, had, it added a dip, another requirement beyond yeah. the potential for imminent harm. Uh, you could only pub, uh, punish speech, the government could only punish speech if the speaker intended to cause that harm. 
And proving those two things, that a speaker intends to cause harm and that it's very likely he or she will cause harm imminently, um, that's a very difficult standard. And so essentially it was seen as largely uh, eliminating the crime of incitement um, of, of violence or, or lawbreaking. However, subsequent opinions of the court have made it clear that Schenck is still good law. The older opinion of 2010, uh, where the uh, convictions of at least the legality of the Patriot Act and its prohibition on providing any material assistance to terrorist groups, mm -hmm. even if that assistance is not directed at assisting them in terrorism, but directed toward other goals, such as peaceful resolution of conflicts, that decision was seen as a partial repudiation of the Brandenburg standard. So people were being penalized uh, simply for speaking out on behalf of or in assistance to uh, so-called terrorist groups that have been designated by the administration. And then, of course, um, the, the court has retreated a, a bit more from the standard in Brandenburg um, and, in fact, um, other pro-speech standards uh, from the Schenck era um, with things like uh, the, the uh, decision in, what am I thinking of? It's the... Uh, trying to think of the name of the case. It is the campaign finance case. Help me out here. Keep up, uh, Citizens United. Yes, yes, it is. Uh, yep. This is what happens to law professors when they <laughs> start forgetting important precedent. <laughs> Citizens United, the court seemed to reject the idea that, um, as Holmes said, one of the reasons we have protection for the First Amendment is that it's part of the political process. And they emphasize more than it's an individual right that we're protecting, rather than something that's important to the political process. Mm -hmm. So there seems to be a retreat from some of the more speech-protective ideas in both Holmes's opinions and dissent, yeah. and later the Brandenburg standard, uh, which seems to extend those things. So we may see, have seen the high watermark, at least in our generation, um, our generations, we hire a very different generation. Uh, in our era, we may have seen the high watermark for protection of political speech of the Brandenburg, and we may be retreating from that now. Now, this brings us to the end of the fourth episode of Case Dismissed, a teenager's guide to the Supreme Court. I hope you now have a good understanding of the case that established the clear and present danger test and the phrase, shouting fire in a crowded theater. I also hope you learn more about the First Amendment and its restrictions and the importance of Shank versus the United States. Stay tuned for the next episode on another one of the court's most important rulings, Brown versus the Board of Education.